Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Press. In association with Scoborough. I'm Ronan McAuliffe. And I'm Lily Hogan. And we have a great lineup for you in this show, including Verona Murphy, independent TD from Wexford, Shane O'Brien, who's going to be bringing us a book review. And don't forget, the highlight of this episode, our big interview with Ronan McAuliffe and Ronan O'Gara. But first up, Daniel Healy is going to be bringing us his unique viewpoint on sports. I love hurling and football. As sports, I think they're fantastic. However, there's some people who are involved in these sports that I'm not as huge fans of. In particular, there's one special type of person that really, really gets to me. It's the coach whose son is on the team. Now, I'm sure if you've ever played any team sport, you'll know how to recognise this guy. But for those of you who haven't, allow me to paint a little picture. We can call him John. John will first arrive to a training session at around under 12, when he's beginning to realise that his child, let's call him Paddy, might not be picked when the best team is out. Now, John will have never played GA in his life. In fact, his most notable sporting achievement was winning a Lego competition when he was 24. But nevertheless, he'll rock up at training, wearing mountain boots, cargo shorts and a brand new tennis polo, bought especially for the occasion. After his first session, John is hooked and doesn't miss a training for the rest of the season. Coincidentally, Despite the fact that he's missing three fingers and walks with a limp, Paddy starts every game, at either corner back or corner forward. It's always one of those two, tucked away in the corner, away from most of the action, because John knows exactly what he's doing. He knows little Paddy shouldn't be there, but now Paddy has a taste for starting games, and it's not something his dad's going to let him lose easily. Now, at under 12s you're probably thinking, alright, this is fine. As soon as anything gets serious, Paddy's father will do what's best for the team. But no. Clearly you underestimate the pure pig-headed ignorance of these men. Because within the blink of an eye, Paddy's togging out as number four in a minor county final. At half-time, things aren't going well. Paddy's lazy eyes acting up and his man scored a hat-trick already. There's three perfectly good players to come on, but there's no way Daddy's going to let that happen. You know what he does instead? He brings off the other cornerback and lets Paddy finish the game. They lose by 18 points and every sane person in the club now despises John. But that doesn't bother him one bit. His son got his moment, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. If you play GA, the likelihood is you've come across a John, and the likelihood is he's probably going to be coaching you this year. So all I'm going to say is enjoy the view, most likely from the dugout. And that was our comedian Daniel Healy bringing us a piece on GAA. And next up we have my good friend Iman doing an interview with an independent TV, Verona Murphy, as life is a woman in politics. Welcome to the Skullvera PBC podcast. I'm Iman Zokanan and my guest today is the independent TD for Wexford, Verona Murphy. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Iman. Delighted to be able to facilitate. Deputy Murphy, you're in a minority of people in Dáil Éireann, which are females. So could you tell us what it's like for women in politics? There's about 22% of females uh, out of 160 national TDs. So I've always been a woman in a man's world. My previous occupation was as a road haulier. Yeah. And but I never really felt that I was, you know, woman in that industry, which okay. is strange because it is dominated by men. Yeah. But yes, in the doll, it is somewhat disconcerting and a little more challenging on, on the female front. OK. And when was it that you knew you wanted to do politics? So you said you had your own business in the Road Holliers Association. So could you tell us just when you knew you'd want to be in politics? 
Well, yes, I've been, I had been a haulier for 25 years when I became president of the only representative organisation for licensed road hauliers, the Irish Road Haulage Association. Yeah. And I was president of that organisation for five years. And in the middle of that term, uh, I was asked by the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar if I would consider joining the Fine Gael Party. Okay. Um, I did consider it. I had never actually considered politics before. Before that, and so when he asked me, I I did. I said yes. I felt you know there was a lot that needed to be uh, done, and that there was the practical application of my business experience. I felt that that was how I could further the cause for not just hauliers but for many. Uh, so that was in about 2018, and uh, that didn't work out with Fine Gael. I ran for Fine Gael in a by-election, of which I left the party after that or they got rid of me whichever way you want to put it we didn't see eye to eye and I left and decided to run as an independent candidate in the election of 2020. And could you give us more insight on what it's like to be an independent TD? As an independent uh, I mean you have the freedom to say what you need to say you're not like most parties have a whip and you follow whatever it is that the whip dictates uh, essentially so if their policy is a green policy you are expected as a party member to take that policy uh, fully on board. Uh, As an independent, what you don't have that a party has is a structure, I suppose, of supports, whereby if I need to know something, I've got to go and look at it for myself. Whereas in the party structure, when I was in Fine Gael, I would have received a briefing every day, every morning of what the party line was and basically, you know, what their take was on things. Whereas in independent, you've got to really decide for yourself how you're best able to support your constituents with the view that you put across. And that does mean a lot of interaction with constituents, you know, and then you've got to devise what is best for your constituents and your constituency on an all-island basis or in a national level, I should say. It's a lot of work. I do 18-hour days, and that's been for nearly 15 months now. I've gotten quite used to it. Uh, I did work hard before, but this is a different type of work because it's so varied and the subject can go from dealing with housing to dealing with medical cards anything you could just anything you can think of it changes on a minute by minute basis but um, I think we're making huge headway Uh, I've got two wonderful women who work uh, I've got two constituency offices and, and we work fantastically as a team and I tend to try and work the best I can to support local independent councillors also So, but that takes a bit of time to build up those relationships because I'm new to politics, whereas some of them have been at it for quite a while. And I'm just asking now, so I'm a transition year student in Scovera and I know a few girls in my year might want to take the political path. So do you have any advice or any words that you'd give to a transition year student? I think it's very important that it's not something certainly I would consider doing for money. Uh, politics is about two things. One, you are a legislator for the country. So the whole of the doll passes legislation on a majority basis. The very rare occasion that it gets passed uh, with everybody voting for it, you know, uh, it, it's rare. So you can see that there are competing interests, different political interests, different political parties. 
And if you were considering coming into it, you are no longer a private citizen. You are a public representative and you have to take the rough with the smooth. And you can often find, particularly nowadays with social media, that albeit that you're doing something with the best intentions, that can sometimes be ridiculed in a very... Uh, what would I say? It can be very cruel sometimes. It's as simple as that. It can be very, very cruel and it can take time to adjust to the fact that people are speaking about you as a public representative. When they ridicule you, you should certainly take all criticism on board, constructive or otherwise. But um, it's difficult when it becomes personal between colleagues. That can be difficult because you are there doing a job trying to represent people. It's not like any other job where you have very much, you know, as a road haulier, you've got to get from A to B. That's a very difficult scenario in politics because it can often take you a very long time to get from A to B and also to know how to navigate that. But from a student's perspective or anybody considering it as a career, I think you need to know why you want to be a politician. And that can often mean you want to change things or you feel there's a better way to do things. And the one thing I, I would say is don't be in a hurry because all of those things are possible but they don't often happen quickly and you have to persevere and have the resolve to do it. Like you're saying, you have long hours and you spend about 18 hours a day. How do you balance like your work to life ratio and how do you fit all your like family time and interests into your day? Like the truth is, I'm probably the worst person to say that there's a balance. I, I actually don't. I'm a mother. My daughter's 26. I'm a daughter to 83 year old parents and I do have to switch off when I'm on duty to look after my mom who actually has Alzheimer's and we take care of her at home. We have someone who minds my mom during the week and then we take over at weekends as a family. There are a number of us that share that so I have to absolutely switch off when I take care of my mom. So the weekends that I'm minding my mom, I can undertake very, very little public representation, you know, because it confuses her. She doesn't like people being on the phone. When it comes to my daughter, we have never seen so little of one another. We talk on the phone. She works full time. She's a food scientist. And, you know, we do our best. I, my partner, it's very, very difficult, but they know what I'm like. They know how dedicated I am. I suppose when I was president of the Irish Road Haulage Association, it was a good innings because I gave that an awful lot of time. And that was a voluntary position, but it took me all over the country and often away at weekends as well. So I probably should balance more uh, and hope to get to that stage. But for now, I'm learning and it's a huge learning curve. Of course. Yeah. And like you're saying now, you want more like work life balance. So what is your ultimate career goal and have you reached it yet? Oh, gosh, I, I no, I haven't reached it because I suppose ultimately I don't know exactly what that is other than to do the best I can to represent the people who elected me. Uh, I think that's very, very important. I'm now employed by the people of Wexford and that's how I see it and it's not a it's not a nine-to-five job if somebody requires assistance that can be at any time so I don't know about the work-life balance uh, for me I have to do whatever is required of me and whenever it's required of me I think the biggest thing I strive with is is protecting my own health from the perspective of eating properly and at the times that I should and the food that I should and that's something I'm actively working on to prevent myself from falling into ill health through neglect. 
end these very tough times, you know, and it's COVID-19 now. So has COVID-19 affected your job? And if so, how? It's affected my job from the perspective of like everybody else, they've been under restriction. So it has restricted me from being able to visit my constituents in their own area. And there's all the questions to be answered surrounding COVID supports, COVID vaccines. There's lots of medical health issues that are being, I suppose, there's only one way to put it. They're being neglected because of COVID. And I think that's something that we will be certainly looking to in the future, that those people who have been neglected because of COVID as the public health crisis get to see the doctors that they need to see and to ensure that waiting lists don't continue to grow. They should be reduced. So COVID has affected me in the same way as anyone else, except I have been able to continue working. Lots and lots of people have lost their jobs and I hope that we will play a big part as politicians in ensuring that their jobs are there for them to come back to. Thank you so much for your time, Deputy Murphy, and you've been a pleasure to have. Thank you, Aman, and the best of luck. And should anybody ever need to speak to me about political career, feel free to contact me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic interview. But next up on Radio Press, we have Shane O'Brien, who's going to be bringing us his book review. Thanks, Ronan. Hello there, listeners. Let me ask you a question. What's the most pull-ups you've managed to do in training? 50? 100? 200 on a good day? Ever wondered what the Guinness Book of World Records is for pull-ups? 4,030 in 17 hours. That's right. 4,030. Let me introduce you to the man who performed this feat and his incredible life story. For David Goggins, childhood was a nightmare. Poverty, prejudice and physical abuse coloured his days and haunted his nights. But through self-discipline, mental toughness and hard work, David transformed himself from a depressed, overweight young man with no future into a US Armed Forces icon and one of the world's top endurance athletes. For any of these achievements, though, Goggins was making $1,000 a month working as an exterminator and living paycheck to paycheck. He was also out of shape, weighing nearly 300 pounds. From his book, Goggins detailed how every day at the end of his 11pm to 7am shift, he would stop at Steak and Shake and, quote, I would go in and get a large chocolate milkshake then I would go across the street to 7-Eleven, get a box of mini donuts, and pop the donuts like Tic Tacs. He's the only man in history to complete elite training as a Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, and Air Force Tactical Air Controller. He went on to set records in numerous endurance events, inspiring Outside Magazine to name him the fittest man in America. As well as being the aforementioned holder of the chin-ups record, Dave has run over 50 ultramarathons. If you don't know what constitutes an ultramarathon, prepare yourself. Well, basically, it's the difference between running far and running really far. It can be anywhere from over 26.2 miles to 171 kilometres long. Organisers of ultramarathons gleefully scare people away with names for their competitions like Mountain Masochist, Bear Bait and Frozen Dead Guy. Most offer little or no prize money. In his book, Can't Hurt Me, which I recently read, David Goggins shares the astonishing life story and reveals that most of us only tap into 40% of our capabilities. Goggins calls this the 40% rule, and his story illuminates a path that anyone can follow to push past pain, demolish fear, and reach their full potential. This book was such a breath of fresh air. Finally a self-improvement book from someone who has been there and is living the life he teaches. And in such a straightforward, no-bull kind of way. Goggins is brutal, real, and incredibly inspiring. It is definitely the kind of book everyone could have done with going into the new year and approaching another lockdown. Each time I picked up this book, I felt his drive and passion in every word he wrote. 
I sadly don't have enough time to talk about everything that happened in David Goggins' life, but if you have a chance, I would highly recommend reading Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. For over 100 years, tours have been part of Rugby Union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! Next up, we have Rowan Murphy, who's going to be bringing us a powerful personal piece on advocacy and why we should be keeping the footpaths of Cork clear. It's 2.15. I'm returning from the daybreak along Old Blackrock Road to my house by South Infirmary. I'm with my younger brother, Leon. The route isn't exactly treacherous, but it's certainly difficult for someone not used to it. The pathway moves uphill and then swiftly points downwards, and I can bolt down there like a straight-shot rocket. Now, I'm not referring to some bike that just broke the land speed record, but my wheelchair and the electronic motor that provides the oomph to make my way across the city. The route is definitely treacherous for someone who could be propelled into the air from a stray-loose pavement to a pothole. The gravel and cobblestones rattle in your chair as you feel your bones clatter. My life in a wheelchair has had its difficulties, I won't lie. There's been times where I've wanted to flip the bins that block the pavement over just ever so slightly. Dent the blue 7th generation Honda Civic hatchback that's parked on the pavement blocking the pathway. Having a wheelchair is like having a prosthetic or contacts. It's an extension of your body. Your arms, your core, your foot are all used for it. The chair and other items used by those with physical disabilities enable the disabled. It's not about you can't walk, thus you're disabled. It's society's adaptations for those with disabilities that enable them and allow us to live a comfortable and fulfilling life. Most of the time, adaptations for people with disabilities aren't a burden. If anything, they improve the quality of life for everyone. The person with a heart condition and the person with rheumatoid arthritis Benefits the same as the postal worker with the load of packages using the elevator. So I continue on my journey home. Stop. The right wheel of my wheelchair is suddenly stopped by a stray brick poking out of the pavement. Time slows as I'm propelled into the air. My leg catches onto the side of my wheelchair, and my left arm connects with the brick pavement, and my ulna snaps. It's always a weird experience fracturing something. It's painful, but your brain goes numb. All you care about is some relief. You get feverish, you get sick. The ambulance is called, but it's another day, another life, and a part of the risks you take to enjoy your life rather than living in constant fear of yourself. I was born with osteogenesis type 5, an extremely rare metabolic bone disease, which presents similarly to osteoporosis but it's genetic and inheritable. Glass bones. Well, it's more complicated than that, but I was born with it, and a couple dozen trips to Sheffield and at least a hundred infusions of permeginate later, and I've maintained a relatively straight back, which I'll say is quite the achievement. The wheelchair is a part of my life that I didn't have for a long time. I once walked and ran and stuff, but the truth is now, 
I'm in a position where I can go anywhere thanks to the enabling that these augmentations provide. My quality of life is improved when ramps and adequate pavement space is provided. Providing these don't just benefit me or other wheelchair users, but everyone. There's a term for this, universal design, the principle of providing design for everyone, especially those with disabilities that need to be accounted for. There are numerous different examples of which I can point to. Tactile pavement for those with visual impairments, audiobooks, Velcro, automatic doors, etc., etc. A lot of people fail to understand the paralyzing loneliness that comes from watching your friends and family around you access and do things around you that you can't do. And while on one hand there's a part of the disabled experience that is understanding your limits, there is still a twinge in your heart from seeing the people around you enjoying themselves. And in my opinion, it should be a societal obligation to bring the principles of design not only to practical, tangible things, but also, well, people with disabilities want options for themselves. If they want to go kick a ball out, that's their prerogative. But it's that sense of agency and control in our lives that can be, for many of us, immediately taken away is what we value above all else. The disabled put up with a lot of stuff and a dialogue between the disabled and non-disabled to provide what we call in the biz advocacy is a necessary part of the disabled experience. Now, concluding my TED Talk today, my arm is fine, metal played, I mean, how do you think I typed this script? But the truth is, above all else, of course, is that blue Honda Civic hatchback that needs to be keyed and thrown away in the river under highly suspect circumstances for parking on the pavement. Now, I've been Rowan Murphy. Thank you for listening. We'll certainly keep an eye out for the Honda Civic, Rowan. Next up is the big interview with Rowan McAuliffe and the one and only Ronan O'Gara. Hello listeners and welcome to the big interview on PPC Radio. My name is Ronan McAuliffe and today we are introducing a man who needs absolutely no introduction, the legendary Irish rugby player Ronan O'Gara. But we won't be focusing on his playing career today, we'll be focusing on what he's been doing after his playing career. All the coaching that he's been doing, all that coming up in today's big interview. Ronan, how are you? Thanks so much for coming on. Great, how are you? Nice to be on. When you were finished with Munster in 2013, you were offered a job as defensive coach in Racing 92. Why did you choose to go to Racing 92? What lured you to France? I always liked France. I always enjoyed uh, going on holidays with my family there. Uh, We didn't go there that often, but uh, when I went there, I enjoyed it. I did French in school and I was more into languages than science or business or or anything else. So I kind of had a grasp of the language I enjoyed. I think the people there and then... For me, the big point was I knew I had to get out of Munster. Uh, I played all my career there and I'd made a lot of special friends and I wanted to um, not go into a coaching environment where you'd have to be kind of prepared to lose friendship with guys that you've played with over so many number of years. So for me, I just wanted a clean break and uh, I wanted to do something completely different and get out of my own environment and get out of my comfort zone and, and challenge myself. Talking about a different setup and, and a different system, what were, even in the kind of the rugby tactics as well, as well as the culture in the club, were there any major differences that you noticed between setup at Racing 92 and in Munster? Ah, there would have been yeah, huge differences, obviously. 
in a different language, obviously, in an awful lot of the meetings. Yes, English was spoken, but mostly done in French. Obviously, we had some brilliant imports that came into Munster with brilliant ideas from predominantly Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. But then in France, you're kind of aware of all the different nationalities of the world. It's it's a game in France that played by people from all over the world. So we had Canadians, Jordans, Australians, South Africans, uh, New Zealanders, Australians, Irishmen, Welsh, Italians. So people came from everywhere. So once you kind of have that, I suppose, mix of people and mix of cultures, you become very um, interested in seeing how other people are doing it. And all of a sudden you, you begin to question your rationale and your method and maybe you can say well actually i like the way this guy is approaching a certain area of of this topic or this guy is giving me an awful lot of a different view on a different area so i think it you become very much more open-minded and very much more into a, a growth mindset essentially so then um in 2017 you moved to the crusaders in new zealand and i mean the crusaders being one of the biggest clubs in the world, performing at a high level. I mean, the majority of the all-black squads play for the Crusaders. You know, compared to France, what was it like going into that sort of a setup, especially with Scott Robertson as a coach? Yeah, it was daunting. The first three months were challenging, hugely challenging. I got turned inside out, upside down. Uh, but I found myself there. I think um, there was times I felt very vulnerable, very ill at ease, but that's good. And I managed to connect with the people there, connect with the players there. It was a fantastic, positive environment. And uh, I ended up thriving there and ended up uh, really getting engaged in the project. And it was hugely satisfying, hugely fulfilling. It was difficult to leave, but I wasn't going to be the boss man there because uh, Razor was there uh, and I understood that. But I probably wanted to see other other things and probably progress a little bit faster. So I, I decided to come back to La Rochelle to get a head job. Talking once again about the Crusaders, um, you were talking to Scott Robertson and he asked you, why did you want to go to the Crusaders? And you replied, it was the Holy Grail. What did you mean by that? Can you take us through that? Ah, well, I suppose for me, it was I'm a big rugby nut. I like, in, I like watching all kinds of rugby. I used to always watch Super Rugby on Friday, Saturday mornings before I used to play the games as a player and... I knew how good the Crusaders were, but I am from Cork and uh, it's the other side of the world and you just never think something like that is, is going to happen. But as I find out now and I realise the world is tiny and everything can be access- accessible and you can you can dare to dream and you can go after whatever you want and, and whatever discipline it is. And, you know, I mean, who would I thought I would have ended up connecting with Dan Carter and Rassing and Dan obviously was the man that opened the, the door for me at... Um, the Crusaders, and then for me, I needed to go to New Zealand to to test, taste everything that needed to be tasted and tested about the New Zealand mindset. And now I'm very much at ease with where I am in my mental state around their game. I mean, how was it to drag your family halfway across the world? Like, how did you know you settle in? Were you, were you a bit homesick? No, I don't think we we're homesick. You just feel very isolated. I think it's it's a very very far away from even Australia when you are in New Zealand and then to get to Ireland it's it's a it's a trek for a day or two but uh, you're not thinking about that when you're there you're, you want to enjoy the experience and enjoy the journey and you know I mean it goes without saying that none of this would have happened unless uh, Jess was up for it and she obviously convinced the kids and it's a fantastic place for family though Christchurch is it's I highly recommend it it's very chilled out it's very different it's very cool and um 
we had a fantastic uh, two seasons down there. Obviously, it was bizarre in the fact it was probably eight months in New Zealand, four months in Paris, and uh, repeat that again. And uh, I must say, it was a it was a particularly enjoyable period of my life. I know myself, right, as as someone that plays rugby, as someone that follows rugby, um, and is a you know I'd regularly tune into Super Rugby and now Super Rugby Aotearoa, but um. Over here, we kind of look at the New Zealand players. Uh, we see them dominating the World Cups. We see them winning the Tri-Nations and things like that. Was it a completely different setup? As in, was it almost unimaginable in the way that they did things? Or was it more like the Irish system, but they just have very different tactics? No, I don't think so. I think um, well, the environment I was in, I think, was uh, made it successful because it was a very probably positive environment and it was a very supportive environment and it was a very uh, relaxed environment. It was very little uh, fear involved or it was very interesting in the fact that it was authentic and people were able to be themselves yet they kept a very hard standard, high standards. They were very accountable for their actions and um, they, they built the culture upon uh, respecting people and getting the best out of people and, and that's very, very important that you allow people to grow and be themselves and flourish and thrive and get the best out of themselves. And tactics are secondary. I think they just get the man right down there. And then after your two years at the Crusaders, you um, took up the job as head coach of La Rochelle. The big question about La Rochelle that, I really, that I'm dying to know is, how do you as a coach build a culture like Scott Robertson had at the Crusaders where all the players buy in? You know, if you win at the weekend or lose at the weekend, that they still come into training giving 100%, that everyone fully buys into it. How do you as a coach create that sort of a culture? It's a challenge, but... Uh to say it can't happen would be to make an excuse. I don't believe in making excuses. You, you, you're going to have rocky periods throughout your career. You're going to have great periods. And I think you've got to have consistent behaviours and consistent values. And that's something that I preach every day. So what disturbs me and disappoints me would be the fact that uh, if you don't give it your best effort in your preparation. So I'm a big fan of preparing well. And if you prepare well, you have a good chance of performing well. If you don't prepare well, you won't perform well. It's very simple. It's a ruthless business. So you have to make the environment very enjoyable too. It's not work. It's not a job. It's rugby. It should be played with a smile on your face. It should be played uh, among people that care for each other and people who respect each other. So I probably have a similar enough message on a daily basis, but how you build the culture is through your acts and not through your words. In terms of kind of tactics and things like that, you know, you've made La Rochelle a top tier side. What makes a team a top tier side compared to a mid table side? Is it the culture? Is it the tactics? Or is it just a combination of everything? No, I would think to be a top side, you have to be consistently good at a lot of things. And, you know, this is the start of a, of a project. This team was in the second division six years ago. So you got to hold the horses a little bit now. Uh, we're coming into a peak period of the season where nothing has been achieved. So that's important that I say that. Have we made progress? Yes, most definitely. It gets to the exciting period now. This is what you want to be involved in. This is what you want to test yourself in. So as you say, it's not pressure. Uh, I like the line from Dan Carter, you know, that pressure is a privilege. you got to be very um, appreciative that I uh, and this team have an opportunity to, to give the best version of ourselves. And that's what we intend to do. And finally, 
you know, a lot of Irish fans are watching your success with La Rochelle, bringing them to the semi-final of the uh, of the Champions Cup. Is a return to Munster possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. It's just timing is everything, and I think uh, Munster's a huge club. And if you if I want to go, I don't want to go home now because I don't know when I when I be allowed leave again <laughs> from my family's point of view. So I just want to try and keep away for as long as I can and keep building my knowledge, keep building. And my growth mindset and keep getting the best out of myself. Monster's a very interesting job, but there's loads of other interesting jobs in the world. When you get out, the hardest part is leaving Monster in the first place. I've done that. I made a good move getting away from uh, my playing days and not mingling that with my coaching days. So I'm on a different career path at the minute and I enjoy what I'm doing. And uh, you most definitely have to do your business in the short term. Otherwise, clubs won't seek you. And would you consider, if, if you do come back, sending your sons to Prez? Yeah, I, I really enjoy Prez. It's a fantastic school. Great memories. It's something that really eats at me at the minute. The fact that my boy would be potentially going to Prez next September, that won't happen. And you want, as a father, to create the best opportunities for your boy. And I'm aware that, you know, so that that hurts badly that he won't be going to present September but hopefully maybe the September after or the September after because it's a great school with great teachers with a great ethos and uh, with a very good environment and culture and I remember my school days they're a long time ago it's a great school and I don't want to deprive my son of that but at the minute I prefer him to be with me than to be in a different country. Ronan, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've given a great interview. It's been it's been so enjoyable. Um, you've showed us how incredible the game rugby is. You know all the cultures, uh, you know across the world. It's it's a game that it's not just limited to Europe or anything. It touches all parts of the globe. It brings people together. It's truly a fabulous game. And thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. For 100 years, tours have been part of Rugby Union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! Up next, my great co-hosts Lily and Coon DC recorded a piece together talking about their experiences with sports during the last lockdown. Hi, I'm Coon DC. And I'm Lily Hogan. Today we're talking about how COVID-19 has detrimentally impacted on and affected our sports, and in particular the effect it has on us teenagers. So Coon, what sports are you passionate about? Well Lily, I play hurling and football with Banhasig, rugby here at Prez, and I golf in Kinsale. We haven't trained in either hurling or football since November and lots of our pre-season has been hampered because all we were doing was non-contact up to November and since December. I also don't have access to a gym and this has created a huge gap in my life. Obviously in schools rugby the whole season has been cancelled. That must have been really hard in the Senior Cup boys, especially those in six years. It was their last chance to experience playing for their school in the Munster Senior Cup. Yeah, definitely. I've heard so many of them are gutted and that their schoolboy dream is over and has added to the stress of what has already been a horrible year. How about you, Lily? How has the lack of access to sports facilities affected you? Well, Coon, I play Camogie for Blarney and funnily, one of the things I've missed the most about the game is the chance to blow off some steam in a full-blooded contact match. 
Whether it's the clash of the ash or the satisfaction of outsmarting your marker, it's always a good game. Oh yeah, nothing beats the satisfaction of getting one over on your opponent in the match. For me, nothing beats giving a fella a good shoulder over the sideline. Also, what I really miss, Coon, is going to see an actual live match. Our club won the Premier Intermediate last year for Intercounty, so I couldn't wait to see them perform at senior level this year. And I haven't yet, but hopefully down the road. You mentioned you like golf, Coon. Tell me a bit about that. Again, that has been totally shut down and my skill levels have obviously regressed. Even driving ranges are closed, so I've had no opportunity to practice whatsoever. Just like the GAA, you'd miss the social aspect of meeting up and getting a bite to eat with the lads after a round. Yeah, I used to go to the driving range too, Coon, and I miss it. Here's one that many of our listeners will appreciate, I'm sure. I know a lot of people who play gal like to go out and run and stay fit outside of training. It's getting hard to motivate yourself to get out the door in lockdown number three. Why do you think that is, Lily? Well, basically, I feel like you've nothing to aim for, no goal and nowhere to show off all your hard work. No crowds to clap or roar you on. Not even a match to show off your fitness. Well, it seems like we both can't wait to get back out on the pitch, Lily. Yeah, I think that's enough for today, Coon. I'm Coon DC. And I'm Lily Hogan. That's all we have time for on this episode of Radio Prez in association with Skullvura. I have to say I'm a bit sad that this is the last time I'll be co-hosting with Lily. It's been a great time. I love my time on the podcast here, especially with my great co-host, Ron McAuliffe. I'll definitely miss it, that's for sure. It's been a great experience and thanks to everyone that's put in so much time and so much effort into this and especially to our mentor, George, who will be appearing in episode four. Um, and we've got a fabulous lineup for you in that episode as well. And stay tuned for episode four, which will be streaming shortly, which will be hosted by my good friend and man and Rona McAuliffe. This podcast was recorded in the Republic of Work studio, Cork's fully equipped podcast studio on the South Mall. We are grateful for the support of our principals of both schools, without whom it would not have been possible. Our thanks to the advertisers whose contributions will go to share. The programme was produced by Aina Olinchig and with the wonderful sound engineer Elaine Smith. I've been Lily. I've been Ronan. Thank you for listening to Radio Radio Prez. Prez.